Welcome to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast with Darren Mitchell. If you're a sales letter looking to take your leadership to a whole new level, then this is the podcast for you. We'll be exploring tips, techniques, and strategies to help you take your leadership to the exceptional level and allow you to enjoy more money, more meaning, and better sales results. All right, welcome back to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. Darren Mitchell here, and I've got another very, very special guest for this episode, uh, a very good friend of mine from the other side of the world, Mr. Paul Rupert. How are you, Paul? I'm doing well, Darren. How about yourself? It's night, your time, and very early morning, my well, emerging morning, my time. Let's call it that. <laughs> it is. Uh, you've got probably light at your window, and I've got darkness because it's about 10 p.m. at night here in Melbourne, and uh, I think about... 7.50 a.m. where you are at the moment? That's right. Wash, a sub, suburb of Washington, D.C. Those uh, called Gaithersburg for those with a, a map handy if you really want to find out. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Love it. And this is, I mean, the great thing about technology is we can have these conversations and it feels as if we're actually, or we are, we're looking at each other. For those of you who yeah. don't, who can't see the video, we're actually having this conversation over Zoom. But the, uh, the benefit of technology in the 21st century, even with things like COVID happening, uh, it brings the world a lot closer, which uh, which I think is, is phenomenal. Yeah, we should pick that up a little later in the conversation because yeah. it was one of those epiphanies I was having last night listening to one of your podcasts <laughs> um, relative to sales processes and omni-channel sales engagement. And what I do in my technology space is all about omni-channel multi-node, multi-modal telecommunications capabilities, otherwise referred to as CPAS, standing yep. for Communications Platforms as a Service. And that's when I had the epiphany as to, wow, the technology that I'm knee deep in for the last 20 years is exactly what's going on today with sales and virtual engagements, video engagements, yep. just like this. So. Definitely. And so now, Paul, you're the CEO of uh, Global Point View and strategic, a, a strategic consultancy slash advisory to CEOs, um, particularly when it comes to high stakes negotiations. And I understand cross, cross-border negotiations, so a global organization. Yes. So it's my consulting firm. I'm essentially building upon 20 years experience in the mobile telecommunication space, otherwise referred to as technology, media and telecommunications. Uh, I've had multiple roles in terms of functional expertise spanning sales, uh, global growth scaling, international negotiations on a B2B basis, uh, as well as now getting more and more involved in mergers and acquisitions as a result of various roles I've held, yeah. which are primarily uh, C-level and senior executive roles uh, yeah. in the space. And then capital capitalizing upon that, I've been in a couple scenarios where, let's say, the company was sold out from underneath me yeah. for favorable reasons that I was even involved in, in terms of selling off the company. I could talk a little bit about one that I was involved in, a phenomenal, successful startup that we, uh, over the course of five years, we took it from scratch, a cockroach, a rank cockroach startup company, to a $430 million liquidity event based on $117 million in revenue. News, which is exactly the formula the VCs are looking for. Mm. Five years, 100 million liquidity event. Yeah, so. amazing. And I also know, having spoken to you a bit, that you have a little bit of um, background in politics as well. So I'd love to explore that. Um, a couple of weeks when we Distant first- Distant background, <laughs> let me emphasize that. Well, it's just fascinating because what, what I love about um, being able to work in this sort of medium is 
you just get to meet and interview and have conversations with people from different backgrounds that I know from my point of view, I would never ordinarily get access to be able to have these conversations in the world that I came from. So um, I'm just fascinated being able, being able to have these conversations with, with somebody like you. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Well, that's very gracious of you. Someone like me, I'm just another average guy <laughs> and, you know, probably work too hard and don't spend enough time with other things. But, you know, we, we end up where we end up. We go through our journeys. Well, you were saying, of course, that you're up at 4.30 this morning, your time. So I'm sitting here thinking, my God, I'm, I'm just about uh, halfway through my sleeping pattern at that time. Well, yeah, to counter that, though, I did point <laughs> out that there are nights where I'm going to sleep at 9.30 <laughs> or 10 o'clock. True. So, True. But my Fitbit points out that I had a good sleep. So, you know, mentally, I'm like, okay, five and a half hours, but it said I did okay. Sensational. So, sensational. Yes, yes. So, Paul, um, what I love to do is explore a bit of your background. And uh, the last time we spoke, you shared with me how you started off in sales. But for the listeners, if you can just, just give us a really short um, overview of, of your background and, and without going into too much detail, because I would like to explore different areas. Um, and what's, what's led you to where, what you're doing now? Sure. Um, well, let's start off with, let's say, the, uh, the professional private sector experience I have, which goes back to about 20 years, as I mentioned, in the telecommunications media and uh, technology realm where I've held C-level roles with mobile network operators, uh, messaging service vendors, and messaging purchasing enterprises, where I've held functional experience spanning product development, sales management that we talked about, uh, global growth scaling, corporate development, mergers and acquisitions, as well as what's called post-merger integration of those acquisitions. I've been involved in probably about 15 different deals spanning from about 6 million to 60 billion. Um, you say you know, 60 in, in billion? 60 billion, yes. I was um, inside a mobile network operator, you know, wow. so the telephone company. Yeah. Uh, and this was in, uh, nine, excuse me, uh, yeah, 1998. And we were, so for a little history of the telecommunications business very quickly, there used to be AT&T, otherwise known as Ma Bell, for almost 100 years in the U.S., in the United States. And there was a... Um, a, a legal decision that was essentially all about antitrust and Ma Bell was broken into seven different sisters. Those were all very large entities in and of themselves. And I worked for one that I helped launch one of the first, what's called GSM operators in North America. You know, where you are, that's just like Telstra or Optus. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I helped launch that company and I came in as a business development director, exiting my earlier career in the political world which is how I landed into this. And um, oddly enough, uh, about eight months later, we bought another company uh, called Ameritech. And this was a company called uh, Pacific Bell Mobile Services or Pacific Telesis was the actual term. And we bought Ameritech, which was another one of these seven sisters. And that was a $66 billion deal. Hmm. Over time, that company, and we got acquired by another company a little bit farther downstream called Southwestern Bell Corporation. Southwestern Bell essentially knitted together those seven sisters again and rebranded itself AT&T. Okay. So there you go. That was a very quick, you know, 30-year synopsis of <laughs> um, the telco space in the U.S. But to your point, the, what I've been doing now, take building upon that experience, whether it was sales, product, development, uh, innovation, global growth, 
excuse me, uh, I ended up being opportunistic and having opportunities to essentially consult to clients, primarily enterprises, who wanted to have direction in messaging and explore new boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, my first client, in fact, was a small company at that stage that was trying to figure out how messaging could fit into their social media service. My first client was Facebook. And I wow. helped put together the initial stages of Facebook's approach to messaging. This was in 2008, mind you, a uh, long time ago and as yeah. things go. Uh, and then from there, I was able to build out a, uh, you know, fledgling consulting. I am essentially a business services entrepreneur in the context of being a one-man band. Um, but I've had clients that included Western Union, MasterCard, Live Person, which is a large customer care engagement firm, uh, as well as uh, startups, private mm -hmm. equity, and VC firms. So that's kind of the arc. Now, Except I understand. for the earlier political career that you were well, really yeah, into, I, and I do want to, I do want to explore that, but I also yeah. want to explore because this topic, this this episode will be probably titled something like "Shop Floor to the Boardroom" because I know sure. that you started out selling uh, selling stereos, yeah. and the story you told me a couple of weeks ago, I love in terms of the the training you got, but also the first sale you made. Um, of course. Before we do that, I I also reading that you've got is it true you got two patents? Um, in relation yeah. to global text messaging? Yes, I do. So you tell, um, can you tell us a bit about that? I'm really curious about that. Sure. Well, you know, uh, I think we have a mutual friend named Graham Brown, and um, Graham often in his podcast asks the question, you know, why are you here today and what doesn't fit on your resume? Well, to your point, um, developing a technology patent doesn't fit my resume profile, which let's just say, you know, undergraduate from uh, Washington University in St. Louis in political science, and then having a career, as I mentioned, about 11 years in the political world and policy world, and even a graduate degree from Harvard in public policy doesn't really fit with the fact that I have a patent. But because of my engagement in telecommunications and embracing uh, the opportunity of joining this, as I said, a essentially foundling opportunity, even though it was a startup, but it was a startup with about $3 billion spent to be able to go off and get licenses in California and Washington yeah. Yeah. State, in uh, Oregon and Nevada. And from there, um, I started getting thrown into scenarios where um, I was doing business development, standing up kiosks for handset rentals. Uh, so that if you were getting off a plane from Sydney and you were flying into San Francisco, you would find out even though that you were using a GSM radio format phone, that back then they didn't have interoperability between yep. the standards in Australia, in Europe, and the United States. Yep. So to be able to serve you as an inbound customer because we were going to be charging Telstra for your activity, uh, we would then have these rental handsets. So that was my job to be able to go off and develop these kiosks, stand-up shops as they're called these days, yep. um, in the various airlines. But you know, we just talked about an acquisition, which is a reality, and the corporate ripple effect of that oftentimes is riffing. And I walked into a meeting thinking that I was going to get a package, even though I'd only been in the company for about nine months, um, and found out that they wanted me to move into business to excuse me into product development. 
And my response was, well, I'm not an engineer because I was surrounded by engineers who actually did the product development. Yeah. And there was this guy who was from Texas because Southwestern Bell Corporation was operated out of Texas, and he was wearing cowboy suit, cowboy boots and a suit. <laughs> Did he have a hat on? Does he have a hat on as he well? He didn't have a hat. He wasn't that far. He was, you know, <laughs> this was Pleasanton, California, which is essentially the Bay Area of San Francisco. He would have stood out more than he did already um but it was all about symbolism i mean you know the reality i've seen that symbolism of before in my earlier career and um he was like no we'd like you to stay on you've done a great job technology is changing so we're not going to really have that business unit but we'd like you to do product development and uh, we really don't want engineers to be running product because they get swooned by the technology well, I walked into that job knowing nothing on the technology side. So I started boning up and learning as much as I could. And ironically, qualified. Yeah, you know, the reality, I think I may have mentioned in our earlier conversation was that out of about 200 people in this company, there were only about 10 who actually had prior experience in the mobile telecommunications field, because this was not something that was readily available in the United States at that time. It was, yep. you know, proverbially Dodge City. So they mm. were hiring for talent, not for experience. And um, my boss who hired me had come from Sega, uh, which was a gaming company. Yeah. His boss had come from Gillette. And I had a guy who sat next to me in our cubes, you know, our prairie farms that they were, as they were called back then, um, or prairie dog farms. And he was the only guy that I knew in the building who actually had prior experience. And he had come from uh, the UK where he had been working for a company called O2, which mm -hmm. was a mobile telecommunications yep. company. Yep. And ironically, he had a great career. He ended up leaving um, the United States, went back to O2 in the UK and became eventually the CTO of O2 Telefonica, you know, which is a big, big bloody yeah, job huge. in Absolutely. terms of corporate companies. So that's kind of the patent piece. I was in a startup, um, as I alluded to earlier. And in startups, you're always looking for intellectual property that you can turn into a resource and asset in terms of value on the back end. Yep. Um, and we were sitting around a table and um, myself and another engineer and my boss, we were all kind of throwing around ideas. And I said, well, why can't we utilize the North American standard, apply it to the European standard, and then start to promulgate this globally? And it was like, that's a great idea. Let's figure out how to, how to do that. So myself and my colleague, who was the engineer, we, we applied those skills and capabilities and understanding of how messages were sent from A to B anywhere around the world. And that's how that developed. Amazing. And that company, in fact... Um, as I mentioned, we went from rank cockroach startup. It's a great story in and of itself. Um, five years later, I owned about $62 million out of $117 million in revenues. Uh, I'd built that out from scratch. It wasn't just me. Eventually, I had a team of about 35 uh, yeah. spread around um, offices in Europe, like in London and Paris, Madrid, um, offices in Beijing, Hong Kong, uh, as well as Campbell, California, and Herndon, Virginia, which is where we're located. So Amazing. it's a great story Amazing. in and of it itself. Is. And it's uh, one of the key points that as you were talking about that, I'm thinking um, one, of the, one of the things that a lot of sales leaders make the mistake of doing, particularly when it comes to hiring talent or looking for talent is they look to be one dimensional and it's almost like they're looking for people who have certain experiences in certain industries or got certain technical backgrounds 
from what you were describing, there was only one person who went on to become the CTO of, uh, of O2 who had a background in that sort of technology, but everybody else came from a completely different background. That's right. In retrospect, was that, do you think that was a, a definitive ploy on the behalf of the organization or did it happen by accident? And I don't, Absolutely. I don't want to. No, it was a definitive ploy. Okay. Um, again, from the CEO down to within the organization. And again, let's, here's the scenario. You've got um, a, a massively Fortune 100 size company that realized, A, it made a bet and it made a bad bet because they had already started to do, years ago, they had tried a different angle on mobile telecommunications. Yep. They failed. They then sold it off as many of these large companies do. Then they came back as the technology started to emerge and shift and realized, okay, we need to be in this because after all, we are the telecommunications company of record, if yep. you will. And so to do that, they had to go off and buy licenses. And again, this is back in the day when, you know, there were dentists who owned Spectrum because they had made investments so early in the game. They were throwing, you know, they were rolling the dice and the dice got bigger and bigger and bigger as it was rolling down the table. And uh, so, you know, they stood up uh, the company and got the licensing and then started building out. It was a startup mentality, even though it was uh, from day one, let's say, a very corporate driven entity. So it was by design. There just wasn't enough talent to be able to fulfill that type of market. So we went from there. Brilliant. But if you look around at the people that you are surrounded with, obviously, there would have been a key theme in terms of they would have brought their own their own perspective or maybe it was the out-of-box thinking maybe they didn't have the i guess the i'll say this respectfully the flawed thinking of being in a telecommunications company for the last 20 years now therefore exactly. thinking about yeah. this is the only way we and i think there's a really great lesson for any leader let alone a sales leader in that you know you don't have to there's such a massive pool of talent out there we've got to start opening our eyes a little bit further and thinking okay what what are the attributes i'm looking for in an ideal person and it doesn't necessarily right. mean they have to have a track record in this particular industry. Yes. Um, you know, that even goes back to my own personal experience uh, on the shop floor selling stereos. You know, hi-fi oh, shop is probably tell me about this. call this... that. <laughs> I love this one. Yeah, you know, it it's really comes down to hustle, if you will. Um, so in, in my instance, in my circumstance, I was a junior in college and I got a call from the bursar's office, which was the financial arm of the university pointing out that uh, my father hadn't paid my tuition yet. Um, now I was born, my father was 51 when I was born and he was um, um, a successful lawyer uh, and he had a solo practice, practice in Cleveland, Ohio, suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I worked at the university for pin money and things along the way just because it was my mentality, um, you know, and I still want to go out on dates and things like that. Um, and so it wasn't like, you know, there was the, the red carpet was rolled out. So I get the call and um, in jumping ahead, realized that this was probably the first stages of dementia that my father was developing. Okay. So I had to very quickly pivot uh, in the context of Jesus, you know, how am I going to support myself? Uh, you know, I was lucky enough that um, I had a girlfriend that uh, is now my wife and has been for almost 30 plus years. Wow. And we figured out a plan and um, plan forward was, okay, I got to go get find a job. My first job was as a teller in a credit union, the St. Louis Teachers Credit Union, and did that for about four or five months. But every every Sunday, I would open up the newspaper. Wow, now I'm feeling really interested. <laughs> I remember those. To the section, yes. 
and I saw one that was um, a want ad for stereo sales. And it was for a regional hi-fi uh, shop. And I say regional because I was in St. Louis, Missouri, and it spread from St. Louis uh, to Atlanta, down to Miami, down to Houston, and back to St. Louis. And it was about 20 different stores. So this was not a small play. Um, it wasn't well-known like Radio Shack or something like that, but this was just stereos, uh, car stereos, everything that might be related to audio files. And um, so I, I put in a, an application and ended up getting hired to do that. I didn't, I was not a stereo, stereo guy. Yeah, I owned a stereo, but I was not like, oh, I'm really into this stuff. So I'm really going to go off, sell this. I like stereos. Oh, I've got one. Might as well go and sell yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. But what it did offer me was, and I remember being hired by the regional sales manager. He said, look, you know, if you're really good at this, you can, you can make a lot of money because it was like selling cars. Yep. Um, you know, it was all about being able to be flexible, crafting the right deal, getting the right margin, finding the right spiff, being able to position that while still being able to um, meet the customer's demands, mm -hmm. their interests, and also guide them through that journey, that buying journey and doing it deftly. Yeah. Now that's, that's a very analytical uh, middle-aged man's perspective <laughs> of what somebody at the time was around 24, a 24 year old guy. And that's who was, I was selling with and competing against. But the bottom line became, um, I walked into that and uh, back to a core aspect of selling is grit and resoluteness. Some might call it persistence. Um, I did not sell anything for about six weeks. Mm. And the same guy who hired me was, you know, we had gone through, believe it or not, three weeks of training. We talked about this earlier. Three weeks of training to sell stereos. I mean, yeah. that would just be just so mind-blowing if anybody did that now. Well, but, I know I know for a fact, sorry to interrupt you there, but I know sure. for a fact there are a lot of companies that hire a salesperson, they'll give them two days training and let them go. Yeah. Three weeks before they let you see a real customer is phenomenal. Yeah. And the way this was all played out was, again, this was a different era. Um, you know, we had manufacturers reps coming in, talking about their product. You know, this was, again, a, a very large entity. Mm. And so, you know, whether it was Pioneer, Technics, Bose Stereos, um, you know, you know, those were the ones that I remember the best. Uh, Marantz, you know, this is really going into a very dusty file. But um, that was part of the training as well as, as well as sales processes. So, you know, we were talking about this earlier. I remember reading Tom Hopkins and um, something to the effect of, you know, the art of great sales or something like that. Um, I remember from that book uh, was always tell, don't sell, yep. you know, which of all the things, you know, is nice, terse, soundbite and that's kind of brain you know ingrained into me as well as a lot about story aspects mm. you know and then the the usual stuff which is you know qualify 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 tie down power close subliminal close all those different things um and as i was going back to it you know i was not very effective uh and even the the uh the regional lead he was like you know you're doing all the right things 
I'm not sure. Maybe it's just the dynamics of when you're working on Friday nights or whatever. Um, let's move this around. And then finally, I closed my first deal by, I remember the woman, she was in her middle, she was about middle-aged. Um, so she was probably about 20 years older than I was at that stage. And she just was really, there was this aspect of reading her. There was this hesitance. I just couldn't move her across the tape. And, and finally, I was able to say, so, you know, what is it that I can do for you that will, you know, you allow you to be able to walk out tonight with a stereo? And she's like, you know, I'm really afraid that I'm not going to be able to install it. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what can I do? And I'm, I realized that we had a truck assigned to the store. Yep. Now, the truck was not for delivering and installing stereos. The truck was essentially moving product to other stereo stores around the region, you know, in, in the area, which was around four stores or so. And maybe they had other things, but it was never like, here's a feature that in you know, a, a separating differentiator that we do that no one else will do. And so my light bulb went off and realized, well, how about if I install it for you? And she was like, that would be great. Let's do that. Um, I didn't even know if I could do that. <laughs> well, ask for forgiveness of your boss afterwards rather That's than permission right. beforehand. So I went to him, you know, and he was, you know, like all of maybe 29. I remember his first name was Matt. Uh, and he was like, yeah, sure. I don't have any issues with that. We could do that. Don't worry about it. Go, go do it. And so that night after the store closed went on you know even the security aspects of how people live these days nobody yeah. would be like sure come on down to my house you know you can put it over there in the corner in my living room you know i'm like wow okay this is really something or wow what a dump you know who knows what you're getting into <laughs> um but you know it was as i say this was in suburban st louis missouri so there wasn't like any great physical risk to me but that was the dynamic now um, I finally sold that, and then by the end of the year, which was around seven months later is my recollection, I was the number two performing sales person in the company, the entire company, which is about 200 or so salespeople. Wow. Um, and that was driven by my motivation, which was I want to go back to school. Yep. And I had options that I could have gone back to where I lived in Ohio and gone to, let's say, Ohio State or other options. But I resolved that, no, I got into this place, um, this particular institution, I'm going to ride it out. And this is where I want to finish because in the long run, this will be better for me. Uh, you know, that may be, um, may have been a stupid decision because it took a little while. Uh, you know, we're talking about what would be the equivalent around a $40,000 tuition bill these days after, yeah. you know, inflation. Yep. Back then it was around eight, nine grand is my recollection. Yeah. So that's kind of my shop floor story and then everything relative to that i mean you know people came in and the first thing that i would always ask is how might i help you and so it was personal it was yeah. face to face it was visceral it was being able to read all the micro expressions of someone yeah. you know we always had this adage that if they start playing with the knobs you close the deal so it's like, it was always like, about it's tactile that's right yeah. and it was they were already at that stage projecting themselves into the future. Hmm. They were willing to accept the change yep. and embrace that change and make it go, go to a different direction that they had perceived walking in. Yep. And so you were the guide. You know, that's the aspect of it. This Brilliant. is like guided discovery. You were Absolutely. guiding them through their discovery. You know, Steve Jobs calls this um, 
tapping in an unarticulated demand. Yeah. So brilliant. Because it would have been easy because I'd, I'd like to just explore a little bit your your sales manager who was there at the time, six weeks without making a sale. And probably after three weeks worth of training, they would have, I know, based on people I've worked for in terms of sales yeah. managers, they probably would have been asking some questions of, wow, is Paul the right person? So what was it about your sales manager that he saw in you that gave you the confidence that the first sale was, was on its way, which then led you to have that track record of being the number two salesperson in the in the company over the next seven months. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, there was a three-month trial period, okay, for okay. the company. So at least they had that mindset yep. of, okay, you know, if you if you don't, it's up or out. So, you know, I was on the cusp of beginning out, let's say, just on a time basis. Yeah, but, but the reality was, yeah, the reality wasn't I was like, I was not stumbling around. I was yeah. not an idiot in terms of how this works. Yeah. Um, and so I grew, was growing into the role of an understanding. And, um, you know, I was also making, I was willing to make the commitment to do that. So flexibility in terms of timing and likability, not that I'm looking to be liked, but in the sense that um, they saw that I was doing all the right things, being flexible in terms of the time, being able to follow the process and adhere to the process because the process at the end of the day will save you. Yeah. Um, and again, back to, you know, I remember the conversation with the GM, you know, that Friday was like, you know, I I'm not sure why this is happening this way. You have these skills. Um, so let's just keep working at it. And it, it turned. And it, when it turned, it became almost a, um, waterfall in the context of okay maybe it was inner confidence that i just didn't have at that stage that i've kind of buried over all these decades who knows it could be but it's a, it's an interesting story because how i mean and i'll ask you this direct question how many times in those first few months did you think about quitting to say you know what this is not for me yeah you know i don't um <laughs> i'm sure i did uh but i in that context it was sink or swim and so that's where I was persistent and, and not, not to diminish, you know, the, the environment of working in a credit union, but I knew that was not for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> no, nothing, dis no, no disrespect to the credit unions at all. Yes. You know, there are some people who have a passion for anonymity. I was not one of them. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that, that also fed into my perspective going forward, um, you know, being able to take risks and, and understanding that, okay, this is a skill that I've got and I can apply in a number of different arenas. And I yeah. have yeah. relative to, as you said, um, you know, your gracious characterization of shop floor to boardroom. I've mm. been in those environments after the course of my career so far. And uh, a lot of it has been luck and opportunism. So it's amazing, isn't it? That um, for me, listening to that story, there's, there's two things. And you mentioned grit before, and I think grit is a really important trait that salespeople need to have. Um, the other thing you had was a person who obviously believed in you and saw that there was capability and a, uh, and a willingness to learn and continue to learn. And one of the things that I work with a lot with sales leaders is helping, helping them to focus more on setting the fundamentals in place and focusing on making progress, not seeking perfection. So not necessarily thinking, well, have you closed this deal? What are you going to close this month? 
thinking, okay, is Paul doing the fundamentals? And obviously you're doing the fundamentals and the sales manager would have known that if you continue to do that with a little bit of twinkering and tinkering, did I say twinkering? Tinkering, <laughs> I love of, that. I'm going to steal just, that one. That is made up a word. Uh, a little Indeed. bit of tinkering, you would actually improve. And what happened was you stayed the course. And this is the other key lesson, that you stay the course and you apply the fundamentals over and over again. And guess what? There comes an inflection point where all of that work that you did for those period, that period of time started to pay dividends and it started to, as you said, it was like a waterfall. Yeah, you know, um, to your point, uh, you know, I've, I've just pulled out in front of me one of the things from Tom Hopkins that I printed out that I recalled after I read it, which was how many no's am I willing to accept on my way to success? And that's exactly Love the same uh, thing that encapsulates your perspective. Uh, and I agree with you completely, uh, you know, especially in, in our culture and the, the nature of the way things are these days, everyone th seems to think that perfection is a, um, something that you, are, you inherit. And that's just not the case. And then the reality of perfection is, well, you know, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it all depends on the scenarios and what yeah. you're able to uh, to do with it. And so. it's all and it's all perspective. And and the thing that um, you've got to have somebody that believes in you as well, right? So there's a lot of luck involved in in a lot of this, and a lot of people throw out the the old adage that sales is a numbers game. And yes, sales is a numbers game. You've got to mm -hmm. stay. There are percentages, there's laws that are associated with this and you're, you're going to get a certain number of no's and that's those that are prepared to continue to go through despite the challenges because they have a much bigger picture of what they're trying to achieve yep. that will ultimately succeed. But it's so important, especially for sales leaders, to encourage their team to stay the course and not to yep. chastise because there are so many companies and I'm dealing with these right now with a number of organizations that it's almost like this instant gratification mantra. You must sell this week. And if you do not sell this week, then I'm going to get this big stick and, and whack it across the head with. Yeah, this is the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross approach, you know, which oh, is first work. place is a Cadillac Eldorado. Second place is a set of steak knives. Third it's, place is you're out the door. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know what? The, and this is what I'm big on in terms of exceptional sales leaders are, are leaders that look for opportunities to serve. First and foremost, how can I help and how can I serve my team? Which means in the case with, with you at the shop floor, you obviously had a sales manager and a GM that had invested in you and saw something in you that they knew that if you had have just persisted, the water was going to break. The yep. damn walls were going to break and it did. Now, what I'm really, I'd love to fast forward a little bit and say, okay, th this is the shop floor. Um, and I do know you found yourself, based on your, your background, you studied uh, uh, polit political science, I believe. That's right. Um, tell, how, did, how did you get into the White House? And that, it's a fascinating story. And this is not a normal story for those <laughs> listening. I took a cab. <laughs> 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, I'll ask that question 13 down, streets away from where I lived at the time. Um, no, you know, practice, practice, practice. You know, there, the, the likelihood of um, that was not the objective. Let's call it that. Um, so how did I get from selling stereos and um, going to Washington University in St. Louis to Washington, D.C.? That's probably the first step. Well, um, 
at the end of my uh near the end of my about like 18 months before i graduated i started realizing that um what am I going to do next? Well, I wasn't going to be selling stereos, or that wasn't the objective, even though I'd done that for two years at that stage, part-time. And it, 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 was, it met my need in terms of being able to um, feed the dog, if you will, pay off the bursar, and then be able to return to school and yep. complete my degree. Um, so I decided after watching a great movie called In Harm's Way, and In huh. Harm's Way is a quote, Give me a fast and steady ship and put me in harm's way, I'm paraphrasing, which is from John Paul Jones, okay. which is the father of the American Navy. Right. And uh, the movie is all about essentially about a two-year period in World War II right after, right after Pearl Harbor. And there's a character in this movie, and John Wayne is in this movie. Now, I wasn't thinking that I was going to be John Wayne, but there was a character in this movie played by Burgess Meredith who is the actor who eventually became the Penguin in the Batman television series. Right, okay. Great actor. He was also in Rocky and a few others. He had this role where he was a naval intelligence officer, and he was essentially analyzing all the various aspects of battle scenarios and strategizing, and he was essentially the right-hand man or one of the right-hand men. You know, he was part of uh, the admiral staff, which was John Wayne, and realized that's what I wanted to do. Go be a naval officer and become a naval intelligence officer. Well, I'm really about as blind as a bat. And um, <laughs> there were no wars back then. This was in the 80s. And uh, the Navy said no. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I was looking around. And then one day I got a strange call from a guy named Bob Jones. I still have his business card. And he introduced himself with, uh, my name is Bob Jones, and I'm a recruiter for a government agency. And we came across your name, um, that you might be an appropriate fit for what we do. Now, that was quite obscure uh, oh, definition. An appropriate fit for what we do. Hmm. Yes. Curious. Yes. <laughs> now, keep in mind that um, back then, and this is still no doubt going on, but the Central Intelligence Agency has um, connections with professors and obviously military activities and probably the recruiter. Are they agents? Are they agents? No, 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 that, not at all. They're, they're, they're just, let's say, affiliated in trying to be patriotic and identifying students who might fit the right yeah, profile cool. yep. for that type of opportunity. Um, and as I said, you know, I also have, you know, we're not even talking about my breadth of travel in my sales and uh, corporate roles, but I've been to 80 different countries and sold in various types of scenarios, obviously, cross-border sales. Um, that's because I'm half French and my mother was French. My father, before I was born, was a State Department officer um, and they had lived in Europe and that's, I was born in the United States. But closing the loop on all this, I then submitted my application to the career training program at the Central Intelligence Agency and went through about a six-month process of recruitment. Um, there's just great stories on some of this stuff I could be six telling you about. Months, man. Six months. Every month there was, and this is still the case. It's pretty, pretty close to reality as it is today. It's evolved over the 20 years. Um, but the reality was that uh, I had gotten all the way through the process 
came to Washington, D.C., visited the CIA headquarters out in Langley, did all the interviews, and then I was told that I was going to get fluttered, which was the last step, supposedly, which is a lie detector test. And ironically, I'd already gone through one of those selling stereos, believe it or not. Is that right? Because that was a requirement. Yes, that was a requirement. We of the want we only on honest salespeople in this company. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. Maybe they thought they were going to get infiltrated by organized tr- crime and, you know, this fell off the truck. Um, but you get the idea. And um, I didn't get that. But I told myself that I loved Washington, D.C. after that visit yeah. so much. And again, because I had uh, majored in political science and had been involved in some political campaigns by, by that stage. Um, I decided, okay, I'm going to move to Washington. So I packed everything up that I owned, which was in a, a footlocker that my father gave me before I went to college, which he had when he was uh, an army officer. And um, I remember I had $400 in my pocket, got on a bus and spent two days coming to Washington, D.C. from St. Louis. And from there started um, being a waiter and started knocking on doors on Capitol Hill. And ironically... Um, I got an offer to be a key punch operator. So you have email, you have, excuse me, not email, but today, you know, back then you had real mail, snail mail coming in, constituent requests, problems, things like that. So there was a person who was actually key punching all this stuff in. Okay. That was offered to me as an opportunity to get into the company, get into the senator's office. Um, and this was a senator Republican named John C. Danforth, um, and I have to say that I had already mentioned that I had worked uh, various jobs when I was a college undergraduate, and one of them was being a key punch operator, and I hated it. And it was at the business school. I remember it was for the MBA program, and I took these little postcards that they got. I would key punch their addresses into the system, and then they would get a follow-up like applications. I hated that job and was only doing it for about a month. And here they are offering me the same kind of job that I'd had four years, well, at this stage, six years earlier. And uh, I turned him down. Turn him down. when I turned him down, because I knew that was not going to work for me. Now, Mm -hmm. meanwhile, I was waiting tables at night, making about 100 bucks a night, which is not bad for a waiter. Yeah. Um, And so it wasn't like, you know, I'm on the edge of a precipice. But the bottom line was that... um, the administrative assistant, which is essentially kind of the chief operating officer to a U.S. senator in his office, there are about 60 people and a staff of a U.S. senator. Um, he's like, you know, we don't get these type of jobs to get in. And um, you, it's unlikely that, you know, I'll come back to you because of this. But I understand, you know, and I gave him the reason why. He said, I understand. And if something comes up, I'll give you a call. About six weeks later, something came up. And wow. he gave me a call and he said, you're lucky. Yeah. Something came up. Uh, and so I ended up working for a U.S. senator uh, out of college uh, named John C. Danforth. The, uh, uh, the process was I was a legislative assistant, which guess what? Is like a sales guy. Uh, and you are essentially looking and uh, trying to recruit support for your senator's legislation uh, amongst other staffers. And amongst other members of the Senate, because mm-hmm. you do have meetings with them occasionally, uh, but mostly it's other staff, other offices, as well as, as, well as answering constituent problems and working the, with the constituency 
um, group inside the senator's office to manage the government. You know, it's one of those things as to um, I learned very off. I learned very early from day one. Same guy who hired me, the administrative assistant, he was training three of us. Um, the other two guys went on to no doubt successful law uh, careers at this stage. I remember they went off to go to law school afterwards. Um, and he said, you know, in the context of what you're going to be doing, you're going to be looking to influence others, but you have no authority to do that. But you have Love responsibility to it. the senator and responsibility to the constituents to do yep. that. And I was kind of like, what do you mean? And I remember him saying, you're three calls away from a meeting with a, with a cabinet secretary. You know, and at 24 at that stage, I'm like, what? Hmm. What do you explain this to us? He goes, okay, when you're calling, uh, you know, and you are calling on behalf of Senator Danforth, you're going to be calling as to, hi, I'm Paul Rupert, and I'm looking for support. Senator Danforth is looking for support regarding this piece of enterprise zone legislation, which is one of the things I used to do, uh, which is all about economic development incentives. And um, the senator is very keen on being able to promote this. He's got two bills in Congress specifically about that. We've got 26 co-sponsors. We'd like to see if we can have a meeting between the cabinet secretary and Senator Danforth. Um, who can I talk to mm. on your staff who might be able to put this together? Oh, okay. Hold on, please. <laughs> And that's how it worked. That's the door was opened. And um, I will say that the caution at the time was, or at least my observation, there were some people who thought that they were the source of influence and authority and became quite arrogant at the point of being mid-20s. Yeah. Um, but the reality was all the power is derivative. Hmm. So if you understand that, uh, and you then back to, you mentioned earlier about being a servant leader in sales and look to yourself as being able to solve this problem. That was kind of the, the first step. Now, really quickly, that arc of my career, my 11 years in the political world went on to after about two and a half years, I got recruited to help run political campaigns and uh, spent about two years running political campaigns. I run a Senate campaign in Ohio, a uh, House race in Iowa. Uh, I was a regional political director on a presidential campaign. And then as a result of meeting people, it's like the mafia. I mean, once you're in, <laughs> you you're can't in. Get out. That's right. You can't get out. And, be and even so much so. Uh, I mean, you know, even so much so I went off to later on. My, well, I will, let me go. I'll go here. So by doing those things and being at the forefront of this type of activity, where you are literally at times sitting next to a United States congressman who is going to be speaking at a fundraiser for your congressional, your, yep. con your congressional candidate or spending three hours with a U.S. senator because you're driving him around. Well, you talk to people. They talk to you. So tell me, you know, how is it that you're driving? Where are you from? You're from Cleveland, Ohio, but you're in rural Iowa, how did you get this job? You know, this is from a <laughs> yep. senator named Charles Grassley, who's still there, you know, from Iowa. And so he's he's doing what he does. And so you, you start seeing and getting a lot of people and doing the networking, which is also inherent in the political world, uh, which is also selling. 
Let's totally. be clear about that. You're selling totally. yourself. You're you're selling relationships. You're also being a servant in the context of this is something I'm really interested in. It might be policy driven. It might be political driven. It might be ego driven. Who knows what the motivations mm. are? Yeah. Um, I thought that I had the right motivations, but as a result of that, I ended up getting a political appointment, or I helped a. Um, this was in the Department of Labor with Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, overseeing all of the federal con contracts, government contracts. And, you know, essentially my role was to break the bureaucracy so that it could be easier for businesses to be able to get these kind of contracts. I was the chief of staff to the program. I was working for a guy who had run for lieutenant governor in the state of Illinois, who had been a prior state senator. He didn't know anything about, quote, how Washington works, unquote. But by that time, I had already understood the political side, the policy side, and also had experience on the Hill. And that's how you end up getting broader and broader exposure, broader, broader and experience. Later on, back to uh, how you know it's like the mafia i literally got a call by a guy named andy card who at that point was a state senator in massachusetts i got this call after as i mentioned i got trained to run political campaigns i was in graduate school at harvard at the time you know i'll yeah. drop the h-bomb there but <laughs> the reality was it was my second week in grad school and i got this call from the guy's office and i'm like sure you know and i'm thinking i don't know you know uh, state Senator Card. Um, but yeah, I'll take the call. And he's like, you know, hey, Paul, I got your name from and um, we need some help. You know, Vice President Bush needs some house help. And I know that you worked where you were a volunteer for then not not even vice president, but he when, when he was George Herbert Walker Bush running for um, president against Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I was like, Yes, that's correct, Senator. <laughs> I did work for, I was a volunteer on George Bush's presidential campaign in the state of Missouri while I was an undergraduate. As I mentioned, I had yeah. been involved in some political campaigns. Yeah. And that astounded me that they had that type of uh, record to a degree because, you know, the Bushies were uh, very good with keeping records and networking, et cetera. And I was part of that fold. I had been branded, if you will. And um, so that was kind of like the mafia reaching out and saying, we need help. And, you and know, you, you probably couldn't refuse. Yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> and I was like, sure. Well, keep in mind, I am going to grad school. Yeah, no, we understand. But we'd like you to do, you know, essentially constituency development, um, you know, looking at various types of political. I remember I was running a Greeks for Bush initiative, which, you know, we were running against um, Governor Dukakis oh, of wow. Massachusetts yep. and how small the world is. At the end of all of this, you know, we ended up winning the election, right? And, um, you know, there are also other stories I can throw in here, but we don't have the time. Uh, maybe part two. Um, <laughs> and so I was at, uh, again, at Harvard. And what the Kennedy School at Harvard, the School of Government, does is after the end of every election, every presidential election, they essentially do an after action. You know, a hot wash is what they call it in the Navy, if you will, in terms of what happened on the mission. And what was good, what was what was bad, and they they bring in the teams uh, from both sides. You know, oh wow! The Bush campaign and the Dukakis campaign, and we're and we're all in a room. Why am I in that room? Because I was one of the few students at the Kennedy School who was a clearly branded Republican. 
Oh, okay. Because of my background. They knew that because it was all over my application. I got, yep. you know, the, the usual uh, application, applicating support, etc. And so here I am and I'm behind, you know, there's like everyone at the table, big square table. Okay. And then behind that are all the chairs of the participants, the observers. And I'm like one of maybe 30, you know, were that were students or professors, et cetera. So I'm back in the taking it all in and I'm thinking, well, this is kind of like how the political world often works. There are those, the principals are at the table and the staff are against the wall. That's yep. how it works. Yeah. Um, and here I am and guess who sits right in front of me? Governor Dukakis. <laughs> <laughs> and Governor Dukakis is there, and there was a guy named um, Richard Ailes who became the head of Fox News a little bit later. I mean, this is again nineteen God nineteen eighty nine is when all this transpired. Um, and so that's how, as I say, the political the world is very very small. And even in that context, he was very gracious. We just chatted, you know, during the breaks. And I said hi. Governor, I'm a student at the Kennedy School, and that alone opened the door as to, oh, okay, you must be one of our guys. You know, you must be on the blue team. No, Senator, no, Governor, I'm actually on the red team. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you're, you know, that that was kind of the nature of uh, the game. Brilliant, brilliant. And from all of that, because there's a lot of there's a lot of gold nuggets in there in terms of influence and sales. Yeah. If you look back on that career. And what then led you to what you do now? What would be one or two key lessons that you still take with with you today? You know, there's so much. Um, it's a mosaic of uh, of a picture in the context of all the different little elements that combine and then coalesce and become synergistic in terms of what you do today to break yeah. it out. I wish I could say there is one thing. Uh, but the reality is that um, how I was trained and the experience that I had, uh, it's I've also, again, you know, we were talking earlier about micro expressions as well as story. We mm. really haven't talked about selling is story. You know, there's a, um, a great quote that I just discovered last night, which was a story is the shortest distance in turning a stranger into a friend. Love okay. Love and that too is the dynamics of the political world you know you have an abstract and you are trying to sell the abstract almost as though it's concrete but it's mm. not mm. you know what is leadership what is why are you voting voting for a particular presidential candidate because you can look at him and go yeah i'd love to have a beer with that guy or a scotch with that guy whatever yeah. it might be yeah. or go bowling with that guy or it alienates you because no i could never see myself that way yeah um so that's one piece. But then the other aspect of it is in the business context or a business application, it's the analysis. Hmm. So qualify, 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 qualify. Have a sense of the persona that you are selling to. And that persona could be different from when I was in Ohio, where you know it's a semi-industrial state and semi-rural state, um, agricultural driven. Or in, o in Iowa, where I was in one of the most agriculturally driven congressional districts hmm in the United States. And you've got to be able to pivot and have that flexibility. Yeah. The thing that I really, the stuff that good, that jazzes you along the way is as much, you know, I this was illuminated to me by a coach that I had, um, a, a, a business coach, career coach. And she pointed out to me in the context of, you know, Paul, 
you you love the international opportunities that you've been involved in. Now, granted, as I said, I'm half French. As a child, I used to yeah. go to Europe with my mother. And then by the time that I was around seven or eight, it became the Grand Tour. We weren't just going to Paris or La Rochelle, which is where my mother's family was, my family is. Um, and instead, we she dragged me to places like Rome and Scandinavia and Eastern Europe. You know, and as I say, it was the Grand Tour. Um, and she she pointed out the the coach pointed out to me that um, you love this stuff because it's all about problem solving yeah. at the moment, problem solving. And I'm like, well, okay, explain this. Well, you said that you love to do this presidential advance work that you used to do, which is planning everything down to, as we were talking about earlier, down to the second, down mm -hmm. to the yard in terms of their location and the principal going, getting off a plane, getting into the car, getting to the event, having the speech, meeting the right people, talking to the right media, making sure that all the security is in place, then egressing them out, getting to the plane, sending them off to a colleague of yours that is doing the same thing in two hours when they land and do the same thing again and again and again. And she was talking, she pointed out, you loved doing that. And this is part of your character, much like you love to go into an international environment where there is no net. And you are every step that you're taking, you are problem solving on a fresh basis. And that's what you like to do. And Whoa. I was like, we, whoa, this is, this is blowing my mind. But she was right. She was spot on. Yeah. And back to, you know, even the context of what I do in the, in the telecommunication space, it's global. Mm. The business that I'm in is a global business. You can't yep. think about moving a text message which, by the way, is measured in teens of trillions of volumes on an annual basis everywhere around the world without having a sense of there are people inside Verizon in the United States who have to figure out how are we going to get this message to the, this, this subscriber who might be on the Optus network or the Telstra network. Yep. And what's the commercials behind that? And how, what's the technology behind that? And I was that guy. And how did that guy work? He had to get on a plane and he would spend two weeks in Asia two weeks in the States in California and two weeks in Europe, sitting down with my colleagues at all these other various entities. And it was a projection of uh, engendering trust as well as demonstrating judgment. Hmm. You know, I had the brand, so that was a good thing. I had a great product, which is the state of California yep. and Las Vegas and Nevada, which was the seventh largest economy in the world. So everybody wanted to connect with me, but we still had to negotiate the price. It was selling. Yeah, you know, even though absolutely. I was I was buying from them, but they were also buying from me, and I had to sell to them as to this is the dynamics, this is what we can agree to, here's how this will work, how it may not work, that kind of stuff. So 100%. it all kind of blends together. And I love that. And it's that was too good... long an answer for you. No, 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 that's your perfect audience, because though. because I, I it's um and if people listen to my podcast often, I'm I'm always banging on about how sales is two things. One, it's the ultimate form of service. That first and foremost, and sales doesn't actually start until the sale is made, right? And too many salespeople don't get that. But the other big thing that I always bang on about is the fact that sales at its core is problem solving. So if we can get really good at solving problems, and sometimes we're solving problems that the customer doesn't even know they have yet. Unarticulated demand, demand exactly. Yep. You know, it's, it's Stephen it's, Jobs, right totally, from his mouth. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's when you look at what you do now, um, that's exactly what you do, but you do it on a global scale. 
So, mate, I think that's a that's a perfect perfect place to to tie a bow around this. Um, for everyone that's listening, how what's the best place and the best method to get in contact with you? And particularly for organisations that and leaders that are listening to this, if you're in an organisation now that's looking to go global, that's looking to expand, but you need some assistance in doing that, how do they get in contact with you, Paul? Yeah, the easiest way is obviously through LinkedIn. I'm listed as Paul R is my middle initial, Rupert, R-U-P-P-E-R-T. Or you can reach me directly at P Rupert, P-R-U-P-P-E-R-T at G-P-V-L-T-D.com. Perfect. Perfect. So what I'll do is and I'd put be those happy the... to have a you know a, a, a no obligation telephone call to see if there's a way that I might be able to assist them. Just as you pointed out, in terms of um, not only expanding their capabilities beyond their own region, internationalizing their solutions, or alternatively being able to figure out how to open other markets like North America, Asia, and Europe, which is my forte, but I've done business in every region of the world, yep. um, as well as looking at opportunities for inorganic growth. That's really kind of what my practice has been focused on uh, these past like two years, primarily because of the dynamics of the space that I'm in. It's yep. quite hot, a lot of consolidation going on. Brilliant. Brent. Awesome. So what I'll do is we'll put the um, we'll put those links in the show notes. And um, if if you are interested and you've got a need in that space, Paul is the man to talk to because uh, not only is he the master problem solver, he's also got some great connections. So um, you better do some business with him, otherwise the mafia's going to come knocking. <laughs> well, yeah, like I say, back to the servant. The servant leader in terms of sales, uh, I'm always open and we'll have a, an open dialogue as to how I might be able to help and um, figure out how to get from here to there. Always start with the answer is what I look at as well. And, and Darren, thanks very much for the opportunity to have a conversation with you and your listeners. Uh, it's been great. I, I love the, con the, uh, the title of your, your podcast in terms of the exceptional sales leader uh, that focus on exception and exceptional is really what this is all about. It so is. thanks for the chance. Mate, Paul, it's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And it's, um, thank you very much for sharing your, your journey. And I think there's been a lot, of, a lot of gold that's come out of this conversation. Whether you're a, an aspiring sales leader or whether you've been a sales leader for a number of years, there's, there's, some, there's some pockets of gold in the last uh, 40 or 50, 50 minutes that uh, you can take, utilize, not only help you get better, but certainly pay it forward to your team. So, Paul, Indeed. always a pleasure speaking to you, and and hopefully we can do this again, and we'll, we should do part two. In, in, indeed, I'd love to, uh, and you've been very kind. I very much appreciate uh, having had the chance to talk to your listeners. So thanks for that, Darren. All the best, mate. Thanks very much. Good on you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Exceptional Sales Letter Podcast. I trust the information in this episode has been helpful in your journey towards becoming exceptional. And remember, please take the time to rate the show, subscribe to the show so other people can find it. But also, if I can help you, jump on my calendar, go to leadwithdarren.com and let's have a conversation about how I can help you along your journey to being exceptional.